0: Calm down, pretty quick. I didn't even try. We're excited. <laughs> we are in our uh, sixth lesson today, making real progress uh, in the book of First Peter. So, if you're keeping track, uh, turn to First Peter with me. Chapter four, and chapter four is exactly right. And our video today is uh, going way back to a comedy duo that you were familiar with if you were around 50 years ago. And in fact, I was almost certain that they were no longer around, but here they are. Can you believe those guys were kicked off television in 1969 for being too liberal? They were ultra left-wing liberal in 19 in the 60s. Today they would be conservative right-wing, you know, compared to the people today. You know, it's incredible how things change, right? All right. So uh, we are in chapter four of First Peter, and of course the the uh, text and the theme of First Peter has been the innocent suffering. Innocent suffering. So there's actually real value in suffering if it's innocent, and God will actually bless it, uh, either now or, of course, in the in heaven. Uh, and so He's going to continue that line of thought. But first, I wanted to bring your attention to uh, I don't know what that guy's doing up there. <laughs> <laughs> but in uh, July 19th of 64 A.D., go all the way back into your Roman history. I know you took it in college and, and you remember everything about it, right? Uh, the emperor of Rome was Nero, and Nero, he was a fine fellow. If you like pedophiles and uh, perverts and murdered. he murdered his own mother. Not to mention hundreds of other people. He he was a bad guy, yeah. To say the least, he was a bad guy. And he had this ambition to rebuild Rome. And, 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 you know, I put his name on all the new buildings and streets and the whole deal, right? So in 64 AD, a fire... Began a mysterious fire began outside the Circus Maximus, you know, the big uh, chariot race track that they had there in the stadium. And the fire was started on purpose. They saw uh, these these numbers of men uh, throwing torches, and armed men actually hindered measures to put out the fire. The fire burned and spread for six days, but was reignited and burned for another three days. Apparently he didn't get it all, that he wanted to be gone. And Nero was conveniently out of the city at the time. Uh, of Rome's 14 districts, 10 were destroyed, 70% of the city was gone. And people in the know uh, great historians like Tacitus wrote about quite a bit about it Uh, and they believed that Nero had sent the men who were actually soldiers in plain clothes as as private men to uh, burn the city. I mean when you think about it, if you're talking about a dense urban area and you want to rebuild it, how do you get rid of all those people and all that stuff, right? Uh, And and so I'm sure Nero actually did do that. Uh, But to divert attention, Nero blamed the minority group of oddballs there in Rome at the time called Christians. It's their fault they did it uh, and put out a whole propaganda campaign against the Christian church Uh, And amazingly then, he pulled out a full set of plans that he somehow had already had before the fire ever even started and laid them out for his whole building campaign. And he rebuilt the city in his uh, vision. Um, And so uh, this was, like I say, in 64 AD, and it began, uh, the great persecution and martyrdom against Christians in the whole Roman Empire. The amazing thing about it that I'm even telling this story for is that in spite of this persecution and martyrdom, I'm sure people in the Roman Empire are going, well, that'll be the end of those guys. And even if you were a Christian at the time, you might have been wondering, uh, is this going to wipe out Christians, right? Right? Uh, But they suffered terribly. But what we find out looking back in history is how God actually blessed the church through all this persecution and martyrdom that went on for 250 years. It wasn't ended until uh, the emperor Constantine became a Christian and declared Christianity a legal religion in 312 AD, all right? Uh, And in the first century, you can see all these poor guys uh, in the Colosseum, but this is in the first century, and this is the churches. And so you can see at the end of the first century, uh, there was plenty of individual home churches all around. But what about 250 years later in the 3rd century, you can see all the pink area, the entire Mediterranean world was basically Christian. And so my point being, it went from a few thousand people when Nero started the persecution in 64 to literally millions of Christians by the time it became legal. It's an amazing thing. It's almost as if, I assume, it could be that God was behind it. Right? And as Peter says, God blessed their, suf- their innocent suffering during that time. I'm sure at the time that they, they felt the pain and the suffering, but God's blessed it historically, and the church has never grown percentage-wise this fast and it has never been what I would call as pure in doctrine and as united together. Everybody was like-minded, and everybody that claimed to be a Christian actually was. And I and, and I mean that uh, in a complete sense of the word uh, because in those days, uh, you didn't just claim to be a Christian because... You wanted to be one of the guys, or fit in, or be an American, or whatever. Because if you claimed to be a Christian, you risked torture and being fed to the lions. So if you claimed to be a Christian, you really were. And so the, my point being, I mean, God really blessed the church and blessed the Christianity during this 250 years of intense persecution and martyrdom, uh, innocent suffering, uh, God took care of them. No matter what the circumstances seemed to be, the appearances seemed to be, God was actually behind the scenes taking care of it. It reminded me of the parable of the mustard seed that Jesus told. Remember in uh, Matthew 13, he said, the church, the kingdom of heaven, the church will start off very small. It'll be like a mustard seed, which is the tiniest seed in the garden. But it will grow, the mustard seed grows into the biggest plant in the garden. It has an explosive rate of growth. Uh, And then it will become uh, uh, not only large, but a source of food and rest and shelter for everything in the garden. That was the parable of the mustard seed that Jesus told. And we can look back in history and see how that was fulfilled through the growth of the church. And one thing you might wonder about, this is a very sharp group and you're thinking constantly and I can read your mind. And I can see that you're thinking. I wonder why God picked this particular time, 64 AD, and the first century, for the church to be born, and for all these churches to be planted, and for the growth to begin, the mustard seed to begin the growth. Why would he pick this time? Uh, Just four uh, observations of mine that made the first century Roman Empire, the perfect time and place for Christianity to begin, for the church to explode like we saw it did, first of all is what historians call the Pax Romana. All that area that you saw on that map, all that area had been uh, very diverse and had uh, borders that you could not cross And uh, Rome, by conquering all that territory, uh, created open borders and easy travel from one country to another. So you had the Roman peace for the first time ever in history. The whole Mediterranean world was at peace under the domination of the Roman Empire. All right. Secondly, you have what's called the Via Romana, or the Roman roads. The Romans, uh, going all the way back to Constantine, I mean, uh, Augustine was the guy. Uh, he was the first great emperor of Rome. And he had this vision of uniting the whole Roman Empire, the whole Mediterranean world, by building highways. Uh, and most of the roads uh, in that area are still in the same place as those original Roman roads. They were incredibly well-engineered, just like the highways that we build today. They were that good. And so it enabled, for the first time, travel all over the Mediterranean world. You could travel, which makes perfect for who? Missionaries. For the first time, missionaries can get freely because of the Roman peace. They can go anywhere they want. You know, they can go from Jerusalem, they can go to Asia Minor, and then into Greece, and then to Rome. They can go anywhere they want. And they've got the roads to get there on. And thirdly, uh, there was a common language for the first time in history. The whole world there around the Mediterranean world where this happened, whole Roman Empire had a common language of Greek. If you were going to do any business or if you were in any way an educated person, you spoke at least two languages, the language of your country and Greek. Everybody spoke Greek. And uh, why is that so great? Well, wherever you went, You didn't have to have an interpreter. Everybody could speak the same language. And what else? The New Testament, have you ever wondered? The New Testament, the whole New Testament, even though it was written to different churches that were all over that area you saw, you had churches in Asia Minor and Greek and Rome, all over the place, and yet the whole New Testament was written in Greek. And again, you're sharp as a tack, and you're thinking, Why would all these letters to different places be written in the same language? Because they had a common language of Greek, so you could write these letters and everybody would understand it, not only uh, the place you wrote it to, but when they would copy it and send it to other churches. So it was a perfect situation. And then, as I said before, the persecution that was brought on in the whole Roman Empire actually grew and purified the church. So God knew what He was doing. And He picked the perfect time for the church to explode like Jesus' parable explained. Pretty cool, huh? You're supposed to be going, Wow! Unbelievable. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, 1 Peter 4, 1 uh, through 6, uh, basically the author, uh, Peter, is going to say, Christ suffered and good came out of that. So we also need to see it in that same way and have that same view, that same mindset that by accepting suffering as the will of God, it will achieve a positive result. So in this case, by accepting it as, the, as Christ did, we'll begin to live for God now. And it really comes down to, you can see it in verse 2, it comes down to a choice that you have. And the choice is To live for yourself, your self-gratification, your self-indulgence, or to live for the will of God—those are your two choices. And uh, there's a couple of verses that explain that really well Uh, in uh, Romans. uh, Yeah, no. Do you have Romans eight? It's all gone. <laughs> we have technical difficulty, but in both uh, Romans eight five through eight and Galatians five sixteen, well, we read uh, where the author Paul says that there's two forces within you, and the question is your choice is which one are you going to listen to? One choice is your flesh, fleshly desires. He called it the sark's. S a r x is the Greek word for the uh, fleshly desires that we all have. We're all hungry, thirsty, sex, uh, you know, desire for pleasure, greedy. You could go on and on and on. We all have those desires to a certain degree. Some of you are like angels. Others are very strong in your desires. Notice I'm looking when I say strong at this side of the room. These are the lustful men over here. No, uh, and we have a choice now that we have the Lord in our life. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us. We have a choice between the flesh and the spirit. There we go. Whoop! We lost it again. <laughs> He's teasing us with <laughs> and so uh, that's the choice you have: the the flesh, what your desires are in your body of self-gratification, self-indulgence, or the will of God, see? And so he says in verse 2, going back to 1 Peter, verse 4-2, and so our choice is to live the rest of the time in the flesh or no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And so we choose to live for the will of God, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And for the time already passed uh, was sufficient. Your own life, that all you, I think back to my fraternity years, maybe y'all had that experience. I can see Jeff did. I know Mac had a long period of his <laughs> lustful behavior. <laughs> and it says there in verse 3, the time has already passed. It's already sufficient for all that stuff. Surely You've had enough of that, and he lists all the stuff that we did. A course of sensuality. You can imagine all that that covers. (laughs) Sensuality. And what else? Uh, Lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and idolatries, putting things before God. So, that may be, have been in your past, but surely you've had enough of that, and now that the Lord is in your life, you'll let the Spirit control it now. And in all this, they're surprised that you, the people around you, your old fraternity brothers, are amazed, surprised, that you don't run with them anymore. Come on, man, we're going to go down there to German's Club and get drunk and see some strippers. <laughs> you go, what? Uh, no, I don't believe I am. Right. Hey, what's wrong with you, man? That's just me? Yeah. That. Yeah. Y'all know. <laughs> and so they, uh, they all shall give account to God. There'll be a judgment day when all that is judged. They appear to be living it up now, but there'll come a time uh, when they'll regret that because there will be a judgment day in the future um, you know some people I remember back when I was first converted and and people said you're never going to have fun anymore <laughs> it made me think uh, a couple of years ago some of the guys that were on this trip I think are probably here uh, uh, there, there it goes again some of the guys that were on this mission trip. We took a mission trip to Cuba. And the guy that put it together uh, said, I'm going to give some guys that have never been on a mission trip before. They've never made this kind of commitment. And so uh, we've gotten together many times and the, the guy that was leading it from East West Ministries, you know, got us ready. Boy, this is going to be tough. This is going to be hard. You know, everything is going to be rough about it. The hotels are going to be horrible. Uh, the food's going to be terrible. The conditions will be bad. we uh, were in risk of being arrested, because what we're going to do is illegal in Cuba, communist country. And so, boy, we were all, you know, ready to go, you know, and uh, conditioned. Uh, and you couldn't fly direct. You had to go through Mexico, and, and you had, because you had to arrive on Air Cuba, Air Cuba, I don't recommend it. <laughs> First of all, they're never on time. Half the time they don't even show up. So we go to we we fly to Cancun and we go to Air Cuba at the airport and they say, Oh, it's late you know, so how late? And he says, Tomorrow <laughs> So we are going. what are we going to do now? So somebody got on the phone and, and found us a couple of rooms. There was 10 of us. And he says, I'll tell you, what, we'll just get some rooms at this hotel on the beach. You know, and we'll stay there and then we'll catch Eric Kubu tomorrow. So we go to the hotel and we end up 10 guys, you know, in a bathing suit down at the pool drinking beer. And this one guy, uh, says, leans back and drinking his beer. He says, "You know, I didn't realize it, but I've been on a lot of mission trips." <laughs> 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 right? <laughs> uh, so, now uh, you can see Romans five. I mean, Romans eight up there where he says. Um, for those who are according to the flesh, who answer the call of the flesh, you know, I said hungry, greedy, etc., uh, try to have that in their life. Uh, those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So we follow the things of the Lord. For the mindset in the flesh is death, but the mindset in the Spirit is life and peace in God's economy, spiritual life. Uh, Because the mind, of the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. They, are, they oppose each other. It's like a battle within you that you have to win. Uh, and so uh, we read that the, because the mind, soul, the flesh is hostile toward God, for, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh Cannot please God. That's kind of a good summary statement, isn't it? If you're going to let the fleshly desires control your life, you cannot please God. It's just that simple. All right. So moving on, uh, back to First Peter. Um, therefore, in verse six, you know we choose to live in the Spirit instead of in the flesh Uh, and so the will of god is our goal and then in verse 7 so we make that choice verse 7 says one of the incentives for us to do this a motivation for us to follow the spirit is this the end of all things is at hand what does he mean by the end uh, well, Hebrews 9, whoop, we're gone. <laughs> Not yet. Anyway, Hebrews 9 and Matthew 24, Jesus' um, teaching, and then, of course, in, in 2 Thessalonians talks about this being the end of... This being the last age, the last era, which is the church age. There has always been in the past uh, different eras. You know, you had the era of Noah and the flood, and then you had Abraham, and then you had the slavery in Egypt, and then you had coming into the land in the time of Israel. So you had all these different eras or epics, you might say, ages, And the author is saying we're now in the last age, the church age. After this, Christ comes back and ends the world. The end that he's talking about is when Christ comes back, he will end this world. And the authors of the Bible were seeing that as imminent. I mean, we don't know if it's tomorrow or a thousand years, but they see it as the very next thing that's going to happen prophetically. So when Christ comes back, uh, this evil, depraved, fallen world that is in rebellion against God will be ended. And Jesus, Matthew 25, will separate the sheep from the goats. Right? And then, after that judgment, he will set up the kingdom of God. And so that's why he's saying the end is near. The end of this frivolous world that the world thinks will continue on forever, but God knows the timing of exactly when the end is. But we're expecting that soon, so the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Therefore, be ready. Have sound judgment now because it's coming soon. And know that there's going to be a judgment. And above all, keep fervent and during that time that we wait for Christ to come back above all keep fervent that's hard working max effort in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins so uh, back in the day uh, that we looked at in the first century when all the persecution and martyrdom was going on the church was unified together and they helped each other in every way, and they loved each other accordingly. Uh, And people in those days were just as unlovable as they are now. (laughs) That's what makes loving difficult. I can love somebody that's lovable, but the love of God is unconditional. Unconditional. And so you have to also love the unlovable. Okay? Uh, And so even though you may not like the person or have anything in common with the person, because you have that bond in Christ, you support each other. And you come together and you meet each other's needs. That's what the church is supposed to be about. Right? So there's your passage on the end. And as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so it looks like there's no reincarnation. Sorry, guys. You don't get another chance. Just get once. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Christ came the first time to bear our sins on the cross, but he's coming back. And at that time, he's coming for salvation. Literally, the glorification, the resurrection, um, without reference, that has nothing to do with sin, to those who eagerly await him. Uh, And so that's the end that he's talking about here. Uh, So, uh, love one another, be hospitable to one another, without complaint. And here's the next that he's going to talk about that I think it's very important uh, when we're thinking about coming together as a church and how the church is supposed to work. He says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What's a steward? A steward is given something, entrusted with something that they don't own. It's from somebody else. But we're entrusted with it to use it wisely. That's what a steward does. And so he's saying God is going to give you gifts uh, that he expects you to use wisely to unify and build up the church, the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts we call them spiritual gifts. And so, as you can see there, and there's four main passages in the New Testament uh, that talk about the giving of spiritual gifts and what they are. So we'll just, we're going to look at those. Uh, first, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes to the church of Corinth, to each one is given the manifestation, the revealing of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit revealed in this gift that He is giving you, for the common good, and so, God determines which gift that is. You don't determine. Now, being eagle maniacs, most a lot of people want to be at the head. Uh, if you read my paper this week, I'll never forget. In the preaching course, we had a guy whose grandfather had been a preacher and his father had been a famous preacher, and now he was going to be a preacher. And so in that course, we had to give three sermons during the year, and everybody had to stand in front of the class and give sermons. Uh, and so this guy's first sermon, he got up and he, and he said, my, my sermon is? Frozen. Literally <laughs> Literally, I've never seen anything like it. Literally Frozen. And the professor came up, you know, and, and hugged him and said, uh, now tell us what your name is. And he's trying to loosen him up. Yeah. He couldn't remember his own name. <laughs> so he said, okay, just you know, have a seat. You'll be fine. And work on your second sermon for, you know, two <laughs> weeks from now. Two weeks ago, he got up. Same thing. Same thing. Oh, and then the third sermon was the worst of all. And so uh, the professor said, look, um, you're a smart guy, so you may have the gift of administration. You you don't have the gift of preaching. And he says, I do have the gift of preaching. And the professor said, then we don't have the gift of listening. (laughs) And the class laughed just like that, and this guy... But it was so true, right? So God decides what the gifts are. We don't say, I want to be this or that. You know, no. We have to discover what our gifts are. Uh, And the most important part is to realize that everyone has some gift to be used for the edification of the body of Christ. That was the other mistake that egotistical people typically made was that I'm going to get out there and use my gift for myself. You know? I'm going to figure out a way to make some money off this. Or, you know, I want to be at the head of this deal. I want to run this show, you know. No. It's for the common good. God gives you the gift to edify other people. And if the church is to work like a well-oiled mechanism and everybody's in there doing their part and giving and using their gift to help others, then everyone's needs are met. That would theoretically be the perfect church. Uh, Romans 12, again, about spiritual gift. For just as we have many members in one body, he's he's thinking uh, the analogy of the human body. You know, your human body has fingers and hands and arms and eyes and ears and uh, all the different parts of the body. But each member, even though it's on the same body, has a different function. Your hands have a different function than your tongue or your eyes. They all have different functions. And that's the way the body of Christ is. It has many people in it, but they all have different functions, different service, different things to do, different gifts to use. Um, And verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, so God graciously gives each of us a gift, and they're all different. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, that's being a spokesperson for God, according to the proportion of his faith, his service and his serving, he who teaches and his teaching, exhortation, you know, encouragement, uh, giving with liberality, leading, administration, you know, the whole deal. That's not an exhaustive list It's not meant to be. Uh probably is no such thing as a, as a complete list. Ephesians 4 is, a, is the third passage. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And their job was the equipping of the saints. Not to build themselves up and make a whole bunch of money on TV, but to equip the people in the church both the work of service, to the building up of the whole body of Christ, the edification, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? So there's two broad categories. if, If you had to, okay, let's simplify this thing. When you put all those gifts together that we just all read about, there's basically two two categories and there's a whole bunch of subsets, but there's speaking gifts and serving gifts. So the speaking gifts would be typically preachers and teachers and people who are out doing evangelism, missionaries and what have you. And the bulk of the church are going to have serving gifts. And those are almost infinite. The serving gifts like administration, helping people, being merciful, praying for people, giving, encouragement, empathy, and you could go on and on. Serving in any way and in any capacity. Most of us are going to have the serving gifts. Okay? Um, So, uh, whatever yours is, and of course your next question should be, How do I know what my gift is? Uh, Again, you can't make up your own gift and decide what you're going to... So you know that God's giving you something, so what is it? You have to get involved and find out through experience. Find out through experience. So if you've never volunteered, you need to. And as you volunteer for different things, at some point in time, you will find something in which... You can do, and you need to do. You know, uh, if you go to somewhere and you go, this really isn't working, then you move on and volunteer for something else. And I promise you, sooner or later, uh, you'll find a niche in serving the church. Okay, so uh, that's what he's telling them there in uh, verse nine through eleven. Everybody's got a gift and everyone's to use it to serve one another. Employ it in serving one another, he says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So God's gifted you, so use it wisely, is what he's saying. And whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterance of God. Make sure if you have a speaking gift that you use it to preach, to teach the Word of God. Uh, I see some of these guys on TV and they're speaking the Word of that person. And they are using Christ's name, but they actually have their own message. And the Bible, the Word of God has nothing to do with what they're teaching. It's not biblical at all. Half those guys on TV, if not more, are doing that. And he's saying, no, I'm talking about if you have a speaking gift, you use it for the truth, the Word of God. Not your agenda, not your program, not your TV show. So uh, whoever speaks... Uh, the utterance of God, whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies. Know that God will help you, so that in all things God may be glorified. What's the purpose in all of this that we do? To love one another or to use our gifts to help one another? Uh, Ultimately, the purpose is to glorify God. That's ultimately what will happen as we do all this. Uh, and in verse 12, Beloved, again, talking to the church, talking to believers. Here's the next next thing we want to talk about, uh, which is do not be surprised. Because we've been talking about innocent suffering. So you kind of need to expect it. If you're doing well right now and everything's good, hallelujah. But don't be surprised in the future if things go awry because they will. And so he says, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you. So when the fiery ordeal comes, don't be shocked. What happened? What have I done to deserve this? This isn't fair. Don't be surprised. There is a fiery ordeal coming, I promise you, sooner or later. And expect it. Be ready for it is the point. Be ready for it. And why would it come? Why would a fiery ordeal come? For your, in God's view, it's for your testing. It builds up your faith. It actually comes literally because of the fallen world that we live in. And the ruler of this world is the adversary of God. And that's why this world is the mess that it is. This is not heaven. This is the fallen world. And this world is being ruled over, controlled by, The adversary of God. And so you say, well, why why would God allow that? Isn't God all powerful? Why would He let His adversary rule? Because God is giving us, temporarily, a choice. God is saying, I have provided the way of redemption for mankind, but it's your choice. I will not force you to take it. And so I'm going to allow the adversary to rule over this world so that you have a choice to come to the Lord according to His provision for your sin, Jesus Christ, or to go in rebellion in the way of the rebels and the adversary of God and live it up now in the short run. You have a choice. And so he's saying because this this world's ruled, by Satan, you can naturally expect that fiery ordeal. And God will use it to test you, to purify you. That word testing in the Greek is used for, you know, like when you heat up gold or silver to get the impurities out of it. That's the testing that he's talking about. God's going to use that to grow you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So don't be surprised. Expect it. And then when it happens, rejoice. Rejoice. Not in the pain and the suffering. You rejoice in what God's doing in the midst of it. And that's the whole point of the letter of 1 Peter, right? We talk about it every week. Good can come from innocent suffering. God can bless it. He can bless you in the midst of it and help you persevere through it. So keep on rejoicing about what God's doing and and what He's accomplished for you so also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation so that when Christ comes back you have that rejoicing with exaltation. And if you are reviled now for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Because God's with you. And He's going to bless you in spite of it. And by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. So he, He gives a distinction between deserved suffering and innocent suffering. To make sure you know, I'm not talking about something you deserve, you know, like prison time or or whatever. I'm talking about innocent suffering, stuff that just happens to you. And verse 16 he's coming to his conclusion, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. If we're going to be judged, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So what's he saying? He's saying, do you realize how hard it was To save you? It took the innocent blood of Christ, it took the incarnation and the the perfect life of Christ and the crucifixion to save us. Think about how harsh the judgment will be on those who don't have. If it is difficulty, with difficulty that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless man in the sinner? Think of his judgment. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls, do it by faith, to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. So life is hope and struggle. Are those competing themes? Or are they opposite? No. They actually work together. Uh, the struggle, expect the struggle, and you get through the struggle. With hope. And what is biblical hope? It's different from worldly hope. Worldly hope says I hope I win the lottery. You know, odds are a billion to one. Sure. No, biblical hope is faith in the future promises of God. So it's related to faith. It's faith in the future promises of God. So because of your faith in the future promises of God, you endure and overcome any trouble and suffering that we have now. Uh, I like it what um, this guy here, everybody knows George Matheson, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're the only one, Jeff. <laughs> no, he's a, kind of a famous theologian. And he said, that, the day of my trial was the dawn of my triumph when I went through my harshest trouble. And like that, all the biblical characters, he said, in the same way, ask Abraham, and he will point to Mount Moriah. Remember when he had to take his son Isaac to Mount Moriah? Ask Joseph, and he will direct you to the dungeon. He spent like ten years in a dungeon. But that's what got him to the throne as prime minister of Egypt. Ask Moses, and he will date his fortune from his danger at the Nile. They put him in in a little boat and throw him down the Nile, you know. That's the end for that kid. But that's actually the beginning. Ask Job, and he will remind you that God answered him out of the whirlwind. Ask John, and he will give you the path to Patmos. John was exiled in a cave on Patmos. Ask Paul, and he will attribute his inspiration to the light that struck him blind. Then ask one more, the Son of God. Ask Jesus. Ask Him from where has come His rule over the world. And He will answer from the cold ground on which I was lying, the Gethsemane ground, the foot of the cross. I received my scepter there. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank You so much for blessing us with Your Word and how powerful it is. And it's so encouraging even though it seems like it would be a depressing theme of suffering, it's actually very encouraging to know that you'll be with us and that you have a purpose in it and good can come from it. And so, Lord, we have that hope, that faith, and the promises that you've given us for the future, and we look forward to Christ coming. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ha 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 Mackie, how's it going? I'm fine. How are you? Well, it's a struggle, man. we turn this off.